2: Hi, guys, and welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Andreas Stenu-Larsing, sending to you live Monday, September 19th, ahead of a big central bank week. And uh, that's why we're going to ask the question today, whether the Fed will be able to stick to their guns on Wednesday when we get the conclusion uh, at the FOMC meeting. And uh, with me to discuss this week of central bank action, I've invited uh, maybe the best central bank watcher I know out there. Uh, namely Thanks. Darius Dale, the CEO of 42 Macro. Darius, Thanks. really good to see you again. <laughs> I take great offense to that. <laughs> <laughs> My apologies. I don't know if I want to be known
1: as the best central bank watcher, but, <laughs> but uh, I appreciate you, brother. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Let's call you the best inflation watcher then. Uh, but okay, before, before we get to the discussion on the Federal Reserve, I wanted to debate the backdrop uh, macro wise heading into this meeting on Wednesday. Um, of course, inflation is of great importance for the Federal Reserve reaction function. So, why don't you give us the overview of the current inflation pressures in the US heading into this meeting?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I'll start taking a step back because you mentioned it's a big week for global central banks. I think we have somewhere on tap like 500 basis points of rate hikes per uh, program for this week, at least according to what markets are predicting across all the different central banks. Uh, Let's isolate the Fed here, because, again, I think the Fed's decision tree um, is becoming increasingly clear, at least with respect to the August CPI report. So a couple charts on that. um, Just kind of getting us started here. Uh, Claire, if you put up slide 73, Uh, that we sent you where we show the core inflation pressures in the U.S. economy on a three-month annualized rate of change basis. Um, You can see just going across the chart, um, looking at the different clusters of bars, you you have core CPI at 6.4% three-month annualized. Again, we're not looking at year-over-year because, again, the year-over-year statistics are noisy. There's a lot of non-information in the year-over-year. But I think what the Fed and other investors like myself are looking for is to see if the trending momentum in the time series, the sequential momentum, can actually get to a level that's you know at or near 2% well before the year-over-year time series to uh, get there. So just looking at a three-month annualized rate of change basis, you have core CPI at 6.4%, you have core goods CPI at 5.9%, and these are August numbers, core services CPI at 6.5%, shelter CPI, new high at 7.4%, and then lastly, uh, services CPI less uh, rent of shelter, at 7.4%. You know, these numbers are ridiculous. I mean, we all know the year-over-year numbers are high, but when you're talking about three-month annualized rates of change in the month of August, we're still building a considerable amount of inflationary pressure in the system. And this is why, you know, if you look at slide 92, clear, which I think are some of the more most important uh, time series to look at when you're talking about contextualizing inflation momentum in the U.S. economy, whether it be trim mean CPI, which popped up 7.7% on a month-over-month month annualized basis in August. Median CPI, which popped up to 8.9% um, on a month-over-month month annualized basis in August, which is a new all-time high. And then sur- uh, sticky CPI, which popped up to 7.7%. You know These numbers are all well north of the pre-COVID trends, which are the light blue bars in each of those charts. So I think the key takeaway here is, you know, is there a prob- possibility for a hawkish surprise Relative to it, is already expected to be quite a hawkish meeting when you look at a 75 basis point rate hike being priced in, and obviously a positive revision to the dot plot that's going to be more in line with market pricing. Uh, We have a little bit more than 75 basis points priced in
2: for this meeting on Wednesday, but if you were Jay Powell and you wanted to communicate this tighter for longer narrative, what would you say on Wednesday to sort of emphasize that?
1: Yeah, so I think it's less about what he says and more about what the Fed does. So obviously, they can shock and all if they opt for 100 basis points. I don't think that's the that that's neither here nor there from my perspective because I think the the what the Fed doesn't want to do is Jay Powell eloquently put it succinctly put it uh, going back to Jackson Hole, which is they don't want to do an about face and and do a reverse um, pivot a dovish pivot because again, their work, their data, all of our data shows that. of the reason we had such an elongated inflation episode in the 70s is because we had these intermittent periods of tightening and easing and what the fed doesn't want to do is be forced into easing because it overdid it in terms of the monetary tightening so i think 100 basis points is probably less uh, of of an issue in terms of uh, markets having to react to that what i think is more of an issue is the fed taking its dot plot terminal fed funds rate expectation amongst its committee members and again this is not like a fed deciding this this is individual committee members voting and putting their own median forecast, median estimate in there. If that dot plot gets to a level that is A, in line with market pricing, and B, if you look at the longer run projections of neutral and the longer run projections for the dot plot, i.e. where are we gonna be in in 2024, et cetera, if those numbers are still sticky and elevated to me, I think that represents very uh, tacit admission of the Fed, acknowledging that we are in this sort of phase five of the global liquidity cycle downturn, which we talked about last week, which is acceptance let's just accept the fact that we're going to get rates really high and we're going to keep them there for a long period of time which i would argue and our data would show is that outcome is not adequately priced in and across financial markets there is as investors we
2: tend to miss the forest for the trees if we're stuck in a debate on whether it will be a 75 basis points or a 100 basis point hike on on wednesday it doesn't really matter for sort of the medium term trajectory for the federal reserve right so in terms of the medium term signals and the uh, consequences for asset allocation what will you be watching on wednesday in relation to that
1: yeah no look it's it's about the fed uh jay powell using his words and the fed uh, officials using their their dot plot uh, votes to effectively tell us that look we're not cutting rates next year get it get it out of here we might not even cut rates in 2024. i mean if you look at our uh, slide 79 uh claire uh when i sent you i just show uh, of Euro dollar calendar spreads for 2023 and 2024. And we're still somewhere around thir- minus 32 basis points for 2023, minus 66 basis points for 2024. So right now, the markets are pricing in effectively from the terminal Fed funds rate. We're going to cut rates right around 100 basis points from basically starting in, you know, second half or first half of 2023 through the end of 2024. I think that's that that has to be that's a in my opinion, that has to be a median expectation, because the reality is, if the Fed does wind up cutting rates, they're going to cut rates a whole hell of a lot more than 100 basis points, right? This is a Fed that panics, when it, especially this Jay Powell Fed. This is a Fed that is you know, predetermined to panic um, when it comes to, to the economy if they just deem that the economic growth outlook and the unemployment outlook and that that becomes more important than currently their war on inflation. Um, but so that tells me that, hey, look, what if we don't get that sort of, um, you know, really deleterious economic outcome? Then it's probably that that's 100 basis points of tightening that is very unlikely to happen. I think there's a lot of investors out there that are sort of anchored on this uh, this concept of, of a recession. And, you know, I hear a lot of discussions and debates across Wall Street, you know, institutional investors. That's like, well, in a recession, dot, dot, dot. Or, you know, when there's a recession, you got to do X, Y, Z or ABC. But that's all wrong from my perspective, because right now we still have yet to see an inversion in the re- yield curve that matters for predicting recessions. We talked about this last week. The 10 year, three month has not only not inverted. But it's actually nearly doubled in terms of its level um, since the early part of August. So from my perspective, I don't think a recession is the modal outcome yet. It may become the modal outcome as we continue to see incremental tightening priced in. But for the current, you know, right now, it is not. And as a function of that, there's a real kind of undertone to to, to the bull market in yields, the bear market in bonds. uh, That should continue. Um, And as a function of that, obviously, we're going to continue to see uh, asset prices. um, So we're going to see that continue away on asset prices. We got a great question uh, in relation to this exact spread between the
2: 10-year point and the three-month point on the uh, dollar yield curve earlier today on on Twitter. Um, And uh, we got the question specifically on whether we should expect this spread to invert during the fall if the Federal Reserve delivers a 75 basis point hike this week and signals further hikes down the road. What should
1: take on when this spread will actually invert? Yeah, no, I think if it's going to invert, it's going to invert probably sometime in November, December, um, you know, if it's going to invert. Because uh, right now, if you look at it on a three month, four basis, you know, we're more or less or we are we are now including the December uh, uh, Fed funds meeting or Fed, Fed that December 14th meeting in the three month uh, treasury yield. So that's now inclusive of it. So it's got to we need to see something incremental in this sort of next three and a half months to cause the thing to invert um, either through the lens of, you know, investors really starting to uh, increase their duration risk because they're getting incrementally concerned about the economic outlook or investors getting incrementally concerned about the Fed having to do more from a policy rate standpoint. Again, you know, we all know that this is at least history has shown the Fed has had to get policy rates into real territory relative to realize and observe CPI in order for the Fed to, you know, um, you know, effectively do what it needs to do in terms of slowing demand and slowing the economy. Uh, That may not be the case this cycle. But I would argue all indications suggest that that is likely to be the case, uh, just given the, con- the, con- the, the the information I just shared with respect to core inflation pressures and with respect to trim mean, median and sticky inflation pressure. Even if we can postpone this recession
2: discussion, say another quarter or two from now, it's not necessarily a signal to buy risk assets with an arm and a leg, also given uh, the communication from the Fed Reserve already now. If you look at the developments in the inflation-adjusted interest rate in the U.S., we've seen a clear pickup in the real interest rate over the past uh, six, eight weeks. Um, To me, that's usually a signal that uh, we should expect spillovers to other asset classes. Talk to this point of the real rate being sort of the uh, thing to watch in markets right now. There is, yeah,
1: hundred percent, man. I think yeah. Speaking of spillovers. You know, one thing we track is dispersion within the equity market in terms of trying to monitor changes in, in, in flows. You know, we were trying to isolate a sort of shorter term flows between sectors and style factors that kind of front run or at least at the bare minimum observe what, quote unquote, pod shops are doing. You know, these are the big multi-manager hedge funds. They control a decent amount of the market um, activity on any given trading day, upwards of 75, 80, 90 percent pick your day. And so, you know, one thing we see in our dispersion analysis on slide 19, Claire, uh, where we show um, you know, just on a month over month sharp ratio basis as a proxy for, for real-time flows. You know, it's been persistently pro-cyclical throughout the summer and into the early part. We're not quite in the fall yet, but we'll be in the fall in a couple of days. You know, that to me has been, it's, it's, it's very inconsistent, at least historically, with the slowing economy. And so what that tells me is that investors are taking, they're extrapolating their sort of bearish bets on duration in the fixed income market, and they're pushing that into the equity market. Um, If you look at it on a one-year Z-score basis in terms of tracking dispersion from a time series, which is the chart on the right, you know, when you get a positive value or a positive Z-score in that chart, it's telling you that the the pro cyclical sectors and style factors are leading the equity market, and a negative value tells you that defensive sectors and style factors are leading um, and and not lagging, more importantly. Um, What we're seeing is a consistent, you know, kind of push to pro cyclicality Now, it's not the kind of push to pro cyclicality that you typically see. Uh in, in a new bull market, we have not observed that level of pro but it's been consistently pro-cyclical. So to answer your question on, on spillovers, I think this real rate move has been very clear and very evident. If you think of some of the drivers of the real rate move, namely decline in global liquidity and the strong dollar, it's likely to continue, at least through the fall.
2: Yeah, I would tend to agree. And I guess the Federal Reserve has been crystal clear um, on this topic as well. They want to see real rates. At positive levels throughout the yield curve, and they want to contain them there for a prolonged period as well until they see sort of a reaction in the economy and in, in asset markets. And in relation to that, I, I wanted to read out aloud the tweet of uh, of the day for you. It's it's a quote from Stephen Blitz, um, an economist at T. S. Lombard, the great uh, macro shop as well. Uh, he said earlier this week that Powell's eight-minute talk at Jackson Hole reminded him of how he learned to speak to his sons when they. They were teenagers, in short declarative sentences to get his point across. Would you expect Powell to be this explicit again on, on Wednesday to really emphasize his point here?
1: Yes, of course I do, at least in the, in the, in the I prepared remarks. But the problem with Powell, we've seen this many times, is that when you get him into these Q&A sessions, like he just he starts elaborating too much, which is ironic because you know his background is as a lawyer and these people tend to be very buttoned up with their words. But in these press conferences, he always winds up shooting himself in the foot. And so I think he's probably going to be really focused on just kind of hammering home the point, which is we're nowhere near done with this tightening cycle. We need to get everyone to understand that, hey, we're not coming to the rescue next year with rate cuts and QE unless something really breaks. And obviously, something really breaks is not, in my opinion, uh, at least according to our analysis, has not really occurred yet in financial markets. Obviously, we've seen some pain across asset classes. But nothing's really broken yet, especially if you look at the labor market, which continues to grow uh, at a really rapid pace. I mean, you know, aggregate private sector labor income growth is at seven point six percent on a three-month annualized basis, which compares to a a uh, a pre-COVID trend of four point four percent. So we're nearly double in terms of how quickly the labor market is growing. In terms, if you factor in you know income, total jobs, and hours worked, so I think Powell is is going to be very resolute uh, in his commentary, and it just 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 happens to see how. You know, kind of a, how, how much he, he he does or does not shoot himself in the foot in the Q and A section. We're going to take a quick break and be
2: right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing.
0: You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads.
2: Darius, uh, we hosted uh, Thomas Honig, the uh, former president of the Kansas Fed uh, earlier this week at Real Vision, and I wanted to play a soundbite for you uh, from uh, his discussion with Harry Milandri, uh in terms of whether the Fed can actually do anything but fail given the outlook that uh, they have ahead of them with uh, inflation running way be- beyond target uh, and uh, the trickiness in terms of bringing this inflation back to target without harming the economy. So let's listen to Thomas and get back to this discussion?
3: I don't know that the Fed is being set up for failure, but it is being set up for a huge challenge. Because if the Federal Reserve acts independently, uh, refuses to compromise on uh, uh, buying all the new debt, that means interest rates have to go up even more. Because someone has to, to pay for it and to get them to do it, get the private sector to do it, you have to pay more interest because they're competing for those available funds. And so if the Federal Reserve says, yes, fiscal authority, you're you're spending, but that's your decision. We are not going to have inflation back up to 5 and 6 and 8 9 10%. And so you have to make some decisions yourself. That will bring uh, uh, animus towards the Federal Reserve as it did Paul Volcker, mm-hmm. as it did Paul Volcker. And that's when I say keep saying that's when the test of the FOMC will really take place. Right now they can do it because unemployment's low and wages, even though they're falling behind, at least they're increasing to some degree and people want inflation brought back down. But if the unemployment rate starts to rise significantly and if the economy does slow into a recession, even if inflation is still above six or 7%, there'll be enormous pressure on the Federal Reserve to reverse itself and that's when we'll know whether they're going to stick to the to the plan.
2: The entire interview with the former head of the Kansas Fed is already available at the real platform uh, vision platform for subscribers today, but back to you Darius. Um I have to admit that I'm personally almost grateful that I'm not on the committee voting this year because it is a tricky task to get inflation back. To say two to two and a half percent without harming the economy, do you think the Fed is stuck between a rock and a hard place in this debate?
1: Uh, no, I mean I think the <laughs> I think it's only a tricky task if you don't want to harm the economy. But we know how to get rid of inflation. As history is, it's been long documented that if you you know sort of ameliorate some of these supply demand imbalances, i.e. by whacking demand, you can get inflation under control. The alternative, obviously, is increasing supply, but we know how difficult. And 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 challenging that's going to be in terms of getting expeditious responses and, and inflation. You know, it could take if we go the supply route, it could take us three, four, five years before we see any really mean, meaningful developments on the inflation front. So I'm not sure how many people really want to stomach you know eight, nine, seven to nine percent inflation for three, four, five years. I don't think. I think by the end of that process, a lot of the people on Twitter who keep screaming it's only supply will be kind of quite sick of that. But that's neither here nor there. Uh, one thing I would bring up uh, with respect to uh, Dr. Honig's um, discussion. Um, in terms of, uh, you know, the Fed, you know, kind of being destined, but not quite destined to fail, but seem to be on this path that may make it destined to fail. You and I have talked about this throughout the year uh, about our secular inflation model here, at 42 macro. Uh, it's about 16, it's 16 different variables, you know, spanning different things like deglobalization, the co- changes in the composition of labor force, you know, changes, jump conditions and wages, et cetera, things of that nature. Um, and then what that model is suggesting is that, you know, the stationary, meeting, the trend, the underlying trend of core PCE, which is the Fed's preferred inflation metric obviously, has increased by on the high end of that, that estimate range somewhere around 120 basis points from the from the previous decade. And that model does not include uh, things like commodity prices or the dollar because those variables tend to be, be you know quite hard to forecast and, 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 and a lot more sort of stochastic. If we get any sort of kind of flow-through effect to persistently high commodity prices, you're talking about core PC on an underlying trend basis in this decade, somewhere north of 3%. Uh, I pause for dramatic effect, because that means if it's sticky, it's somewhere north of 3%. It means the Fed's going to have a hell of a time in terms of the damage it's going to have to do to the economy to get it to go from three to two. And so it's been my hypothesis really for you know the last, I don't know, six, seven months, is that by the end of this tightening process and the end of this sort of economic downturn, and we're talking about Trying to go from three to two, I think that's when we're likely to see a positive revision to the Fed's inflation forecast. I mean, how we already saw one in August of 2020 when they abandoned 2% for, you know, in, in exchange for the average inflation target. I think the next step in that process is just openly and, tacit- and and explicitly admitting that, hey, look, the number's now two and a half or three, you know, as opposed to trying to get it to two. I don't think they need to do that yet because the trade-off between unemployment and inflation is, is not really much of a trade-off at this particular juncture. But when we get to, you know, let's say unemployment in the fours or fives, that's when I think they're going to have a much more difficult time politically in, in pursuing a path of infl- uh, that gets inflation from, let's say, three to two, as opposed to going from nine to three.
2: If we assume that you're right, that they will accept a higher sort of median trajectory for the PCE index over time, what will that mean for the long-term projections for real interest rates Uh, we agreed that uh, real interest rates matter a lot for asset pricing across assets but what will that
1: mean for the real interest rates over time yeah it probably implies lower real interest rates if you think about just kind of mechanically if you have persistently higher inflation you're probably going to have lower real interest rates but you can also make the case that it probably augurs for higher real interest rates because, again, the other side of this is that we're probably having a, an economy that has higher nominal growth you know, on a consistent basis relative to the prior trends. And so I could easily see a situation where, you know, the bond market just it, you know repudiates the concept of you know, changing the Fed's inflation target. And, you know, all that 40 and everybody's 60, 40 portfolios starts looking for new homes. And eventually, by the end of the decade, it's probably somewhere around you know, 30. You know, I think th- I think this if we have a positive revision to the inflation uh The inflation targets for, you know, not even the Fed, but it could be global central banks as well. We are going to see 6040 go to 60, 30, 10. There's no question about that, because there's just too many bonds in the system and not enough buyers in the context of a structurally higher inflation regime that central banks are acquiescing to. Remember, we talked about this. If the central banks want to get rid of inflation by destroying the economy, that's bond bullish. If they allow inflation to fester or at least have a structural change higher or jump condition higher, that's bond bearish long term. And I'm not sure what the appropriate price of bonds is, but I do know it's not 3.5 on the 10-year because, again, we got term, term premium minus minus you know, 50, 60 basis points right now. That could easily go to plus 50, 60 or not 400 like it did in the 70s. I don't think it's going there, but it certainly has that range. If we look at the most recent development in uh, central
2: bank balance sheets in relation to bond markets, uh, one of the questions that I've been asking myself over the course of the past couple of months here is whether this balance sheet reduction is positive or negative for bonds. We've seen earlier that uh, bond yields have actually dropped um, in in times of tapering, um, quite in contrast to what you should expect from a supply-demand perspective. But what do you make of that debate uh, of the central bank balance sheet sizes and the bond market?
1: Yeah, so a couple of things. So, uh, Claire, if you thought this chart, the 26, where we show the G5 central bank balance sheet in dollar terms, um, that number has declined about four trillion dollars from its uh, from its uh, February peak, and as a function of that decline, you know, inclusive of all the changes that we've seen in all, all the rest of the central bank balance sheets, we've seen a twenty-six trillion dollar decline in the in the world equity market capitalization. That's the red line in the chart. The blue line is the G five central bank balance sheet, and the black line in the chart just shows the Bloomberg uh, Global Aggregate Index, which is an index of investment grade bonds. It's not the total stock of capitalization, but it's a you know particular index, and that index is down eleven trillion. Uh, since peaking. And, and as you notice, both of those indices, the red line and the black line in this chart peaked in advance of the decline in the central bank balance sheet. So markets were in fact front running um, the decline. And so, you know, going back to, you know, kind of your your discussion, you know, if we're going to continue to see this decline in central bank balance sheets, particularly on dollar terms, because to me, I think that's one of the most important aspects of this whole decline. Um, actually, if you throw up a chart, uh, slide 27, where we show the ECBs, Bank of England, Bank of Japan, and PBOC's balance sheet in dollar terms, they're all declining. And the reason I have my hypothesis on this is just that we can't support the outstanding stock of dollar assets in the world when these central bank balance sheets are declining in dollar terms, because again, it's evaporating the liabilities on the other side of those balance sheets in terms of the currency and the ability for these asset markets to um, you know, to create credit, create liquidity for, for investments. And so in my opinion, as long as we're going to be in this environment. In, in terms of declining central bank balance sheets in dollar terms, it's going to have a, a positive influence over global bond yields. Um, we could start to see a negative influence on global bond yields once the dollar starts to peak out and roll over. But in my opinion, I don't think a dollar peak is going to really come to fruition unless we really start to see some significantly negative economic performance uh, in the U.S. know, you know, that's you know, There's two types of tapering. There's tapering when everything's fine economically and bond yields tend to rise, at least according to our grid asset market back test. And then there's tapering when the economy is slowing, and long as bond yields tend to fall. I don't think we're at that point in the latter part of the process yet. We're slowing economically, but we're not necessarily slowing either to a point or at a fast enough pace that has investors freaked out about the growth outlook, again, as, as evidenced by the lack of inversion in the 10-year, three-month yoker.
2: If we look at the current positioning in uh, CFTC futures, both in equity space and in bond space, it is pretty clear that investors are short both Assets, so both bonds and equities at the same time. and we've basically been used to a decade of performance in bonds when equities sold off, and vice versa. So what do you make of this um, rotation towards equities and bonds selling off at the same time and maybe gaining at the same time? again, here there is.
1: yeah, so we've shown this in our work as well, forty two macro. I mean when you have inflation cross this sort of it's somewhere between four and five percent um empirically, and this is data going back to the eighteen hundreds. You know, when you have inflation across that threshold, the co- po- the covariance between stocks and bonds flips to positive. Um, and then the higher the level of inflation, the higher the level of covariance. And so, you know, there's a lot of things that happen when you have high levels of inflation. You know, uh, sort of things like you know, economic volatility, both nominal uh, economic growth, real economic growth. Those things scale linearly with the amount of uh, inflation volatility you have. Which obviously, if you have higher inflation levels of inflation, you tend to have higher inflation volatility. So there's a lot of stuff. That tends to happen on the on the negative side when inflation is really high. Now, again, we're going to get back, in my opinion, at some point over the next 12 to 18 months to three percent inflation. Hell, we could be there by you know six nine months from now if you look at it on a three month annualized rate of change basis. You know, which I think again the market is more focused on the sequential because we know the sequential is going to you know beat the the year over year numbers by, by several quarters if not if not a, well, quite a few months or sorry several months if not a couple of quarters. So you know when we get to those levels. What, you know, what, where, you know, will we see that inverse covariance? I would argue we will probably start to see it because, again, by that, that time, by, you know, let's call it two, three quarters from now, the economy will be in a worse off state. The labor market will be in a worse off state and the market could really start to anticipate a, a Fed pause or something that maybe look like an implicit pivot or something. I don't know. Maybe they change the SLR or something like that on, in terms of, um you know, kind of pr- trying to provide relief to the uh, fixed income markets. We have time for a couple of questions
2: from the audience, Darius, and uh, we should remember that there are other central bank meetings this week than the Federal Reserve. We have a a meeting in Bank of Japan. We have a meeting in Bank of England, uh, Norway, Sweden, et cetera, uh, a load of them this week. And we've uh, got a question from another Andreas, actually, so maybe I have a fellow Scandinavian watching out there. Um, He's asking you, Darius, uh, since the Fed decision is sort of a relative game versus other central banks, what do you see the other central banks doing this week if the Fed uh, hikes by 75 or
1: even 100 basis points yeah I mean they're all playing catch up right I mean you pull up a chart of the dollar it just tells you what what's happening which is the Fed is is keeping pace with the change in in tightening expectations amongst all these central banks now when it starts to not keep pace is when you're going to start to see the dollar put in a it's you know pretty you know pretty meaningful secular high and perhaps that could be a secular high that lasts for several years but for now, the Fed is still quite resolute because again, I think the labor market and the inflation data are telling it to remain resolute. Again, you know, we started this conversation talking about six to seven and a half percent core CPI momentum on a three-month annualized basis, eight to nine percent, you know, trend mean, median, sticky CPI momentum on a month-over month annualized basis. We are nowhere near levels of inflation sequentially or labor market growth sequentially that will allow the Fed to pivot. So going back to this question on the dollar and what other central banks are going to do. We think they're going to try to keep pace. Heck, you might even start to see other central banks, probably not the ECB, but maybe um, Bank of England or something, change, you know, kind of change the speed with which they're tightening so they can try to gain some, some, some ground against the Fed. But ultimately, we don't really see material uh, ground being gained until we get you know, probably into the early part of next year.
2: We're going to take another quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. We have a tremendous question uh from a viewer called Michael uh, and it's a fairly technical question so I'm trying to translate this into sort of layman words um but He's asking you about the issue of the Federal Reserve having bought a lot of bonds on the balance sheet at lower interest rates compared to the yield levels that we see right now in markets. Um, Through 2019 and 2020, uh, the Fed obviously remunerated deposits with zero interest rates uh, to counterparts. But now that they've raised interest rates, they are starting to pay interest to the counterparts uh, with excess liquidity parked at the Federal Reserve at maybe even higher levels than the interest rates they um, bought uh, implied in 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 the bonds that they bought throughout the pandemic. What do you make of that discussion? Is it something that is important for the Fed reaction function? And uh, now that uh, the yield environment has sort of shifted to an
1: to an upwards uh, direction? Yeah, I mean that sounds like well, so it's important if the Fed was a private sector entity. I mean, think about if the Fed were an actual bank. You know, they're basically borrowing. They're borrowing at a higher level of, of interest and in paying a lo- or sorry, they're paying a, a a lower level of interest in their uh, uh, sorry. It's the other way around. They're paying a higher level of interest than they're actually their funding. So um, that's an issue. But this is an entity that prints, uh, I don't want to say money because I'm going to make people explode. Their heads are going to explode. But this is an entity that prints the things that it needs to pay people with. How about that? (laughs) Whatever you want to call it, because I'm not going to get in that philosophical discussion today because I don't have time for it. But yeah, no, the the Fed is fine. This is not an issue. The issue is that the Fed's balance sheet is contracting. And because investors don't want to take equity or sorry, not equity, uh, they don't want to take credit risk, duration risk or liquidity risk. They're parking two point five, two point two trillion dollars of excess liquidity with the Fed. They don't have to do that. You know, if if, if we got some sort of signal that, hey, look, we need to go buy a bunch of bonds or buy a bunch of stocks. I guarantee you that excess liquidity in the reverse repo facility will go from two trillion to one trillion to zero could go to zero. But it doesn't need to go to zero. And it certainly doesn't appear to like it's going to be declining in any substantial uh, degree over the medium term. Because, again, the economic signals remain quite poor. You know, the, the, the monetary tightening signals remain quite poor. And I still think going back to that euro dollar calendar spread chart, there is still some 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 way to go in terms of the Fed convincing market participants that we're not returning to the previous, you know, kind of easing cycle on any risk manageable investment horizon. And
2: that leads me to the final question from the audience uh, today. Uh, it's actually from my colleague, Ash, but I, I wanted to bring it up. Um, he's asking you, Darius, uh, what does it take for the Fed to reverse course and cut? What would they need to see breaking in the economy, and how much pain would they need to see before they actually decide on a reversal?
1: Yeah, it's going to be through the lens of the labor market, right? I mean, you know, it's could they cut if we got into a really adverse situation from a Financial stability standpoint, yeah, of course. I just think that's a lesser, that's a lower probability event. You know, if you look at, you know, again, we talked about this last week. There's like six, seven, there's $7 trillion of excess liquidity sitting on consumer and corporate balance sheets, you know, about $4.9 trillion for U.S. households. There's about uh, $2.1 trillion for U.S. corporations. Everybody is itching to buy the dip. No one really wants to buy the dip until they get some signal from policymakers that it's safe to buy the dip. We just don't think we're going to get any of those signals uh, again anytime soon. I mean, we'll probably get some signals, let's call it, sometime early next year. But again, it's September 19th. We've got a lot of risk to manage in between now and then. Yeah,
2: yeah we certainly have, uh, Darius. So I'll try to sum up on today's uh, discussion. And uh, I'll like to introduce the meme of the day um, in, in relation to, to, to that summary, because um, I think you're very clear in what you say today Darius um the fed will continue to signal that we are in a tighter for longer monetary policy regime right now, whether it's tight enough will be sort of dependent on the labor market and risk assets. Uh, But I mean, given the amount of cash parked on the sidelines still, it's not necessarily a scenario that will lead equities to new lows compared to the ones we saw just before summer, even if we have this outlook of weaker economic growth and tighter financial and monetary policy, maybe
1: at the same time right now. Anything I missed there? There is no, no. I think you summed it up. You know, I, again, I, I think the, what we've learned since June of all the things we've learned is that the economy is more resilient than we thought it was. And going back to June, you know, I think there was a real debate and discussion around a recession commencing. You know, kind of sometime in Q4, even as early as Q1. I think if a recession does commence, it could be probably a Q3 second half of 2023 event. And so that additional, you know, those that additional space of time allows for the continued growth of earnings, do you go with the corporate profits, consumer income, et cetera. So, you know, this economy has a little bit more juice, at least the U.S. economy uh, than we initially thought it did. And because of that, you know, going back to your point, you know, do we need to retest the lows? Do we need to make new lows? Uh, I don't know if we need to make new lows, but I do believe a retest of the lows is in question in order. Because, again, as long as the Fed continues to hike interest rates. The, the money you the free the free yield you're going to get for taking zero risk to park your money with the Fed via you know reverse entities that have ability to tap that is going to be higher and higher and higher. If we get to three five or four percent, who in the heck is going to want to buy an equity or credit security when they can just go get that kind of return from the Fed without taking that 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 cycle risk? And so, to me, I think we're headed for some more volatility. It just doesn't necessarily have to be as bad as we thought it was in June word Darius
2: it's always a pleasure to cut through the macro noise in your company so thank you so much for joining the daily briefing again today appreciate you Andreas man always a pleasure I also want to say thank you to the audience out there it's been a pleasure hosting the daily briefing again today my colleague Maggie Lake will be back tomorrow with more Tony Greer will be guesting the show so uh, see you there